0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Shift with Gina. I'm very excited to have a guest today. It's been a little while since we've done a guest, and today's conversation is going to be a very, very interesting one. Um, We're going to be talking about surrogacy today, which is a topic that I have spoken about many times before on my show. I talk about it on social media. It's a very hot topic right now that is gaining a lot of traction, particularly due to the fact that there are a lot of celebrities and influencers who are opting in for surrogacy. So it's becoming much more common for us to see it, much more common for us to talk about it. So we have somebody here who's going to help us unpack this issue and really get to the root of what's happening here and why so many of us, most of us on the right, but why so many of us in general just oppose the idea of surrogacy, uh, mostly for for the children's safety and the children's protection. Uh, but before we get into it, I want to remind you that this episode is brought to you by Charlie Skincare. As usual, um you guys know I'm very, very particular about what kind of products I use on my skin and my body. Um one of the things that I think women really make the mistake of is just slathering their body full of endocrine disruptors. And then they wonder why their skin is breaking out and they have hormonal issues. So Charlie's skincare is very, very conscious about what kind of ingredients they put in. I love their serums. We have two of their serums here. The very first product I ever used from Charlie's was actually the daily moisturizer. So I use this in the morning if I have to put makeup on. You guys know at night I'm more of a beef tallow kind of girl. But when I have to put on some makeup to start the day... Um, I use that moisturizer underneath and it's just a really nice light product that's not going to irritate your skin, not going to make you break out. And just as importantly, the founder is aligned with our value. So they're a company that you feel comfortable giving your money to, and it's a win-win because you're getting a great product as well. So you get 20% off if you use my code Gina, G I N A. So to click the link in the description, try out any of their products. We got Valentine's day coming up ladies. So treat yourself or ask, your husband or your boyfriend to treat you. You get a 20% off anything on the website. And if you guys have any questions about the products, please feel free to DM me because this is actually stuff that I use. I hope that I would never try to sell you guys something that I don't use. I've been using Charlize for about a year and a half now. So check them out, Charlize Skincare. And now we can jump into our episode. Welcome, Katie Faust. I'm so happy to have you today. Um, You and I have been following each other on social media for a little while now. I'm just a huge fan of The support that you give to children, especially in this conversation of surrogacy. Katie is the founder and president of a nonprofit organization called Them Before Us, which really prioritizes the needs of children over the the desires of adults. So um, we're going to let Katie introduce herself. And Katie, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Them Before Us and the work that you do?
1: Yeah, it's such a joy to be with you. I have been a fan for a long time, and it's uh, wonderful to be able to talk to your listeners about surrogacy because, unfortunately, there is a surprising amount of confusion, even on the right, when it comes to um, commercially um, creating children who are going to lose their mother Um, and we can talk a little more about that. But what we're doing at Them Before Us is um, we're focused on a lot of different issues. Really anything that intersects with marriage and family, we're going to look at it from the perspective of a child's rights and well-being. So children have a right, I think your followers probably uh, would largely understand and agree that they have a right to life. Um, These are fundamental natural rights, something that we can know based on natural law something that is true whether or not it's recognized in our civil law. So children also have a natural right to be known and loved by both their mother and father. And if we can protect that right to both biological parents, we not only set them up statistically, I mean, research hands down would say um, a child is most likely to thrive physically, mentally, emotionally, academically, relationally when they are Raised by their own biological mother and father in a married relationship. And so there's a lot of power behind defending children's right to their mother and father. Unfortunately, when it comes to any topic about marriage and family, children's rights and needs are very often completely ignored. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do at Them Before Us is take every marriage and family issue and not see them as disconnected. Oh, questions about cohabitation, reproductive technologies, the definition of marriage, when is divorce acceptable, who is adoption for? Uh, And we look at all of them really through the lens of what about the child? First understand who the child is, what they need and what they have a right to. And then you get the correct answer to all of these other manifestations of marriage, parenthood, birth certificates. I mean, you name it, if it has to do with marriage and family, we elevate the rights of the child first. And then we insist that all adults sacrifice for kids because the only alternative is for kids to sacrifice for adults. And that is a fundamental injustice. So that's what we're going to be talking about. That's the perspective I'm going to be bringing in this conversation about surrogacy, not necessarily what the reproductive, what big fertility is trying to push, um, mm-hmm. not what this empathy for infertile couples or celebrities that are afraid of carrying their own children or single men, double men, triple men who are acquiring children through these technologies. Um, not even you know your sweet infertile friend that you desperately want to be a mother and who is unable to carry her own children. We're not gonna be looking at that from the perspective of the adults. This conversation, I hope to accurately represent the rights and well-being of children and how this industry commodifies, discarded, and puts them at serious risk of abuse and um, and danger. Mm.
0: Yeah. When you say that, I think it's, I like that perspective you say. It's either the parents sacrificing for the children or it's the other way around. And there's really not an in-between there, is it? And this reminds me so much of Uh, The viral story of Khloe Kardashian, right? That's probably one of the more popular surrogacy stories that we've seen in the culture in the last probably year. And she was talking about how difficult it was for her to bond with her baby, who Mm -hmm. she paid another woman to carry for her. Um, obviously this, this is a gestational surrogacy. So biologically, Chloe is the mother of this child, but she didn't have this physical connection to the child because she paid someone else to carry him for her. And so she's in tears and she's talking about how difficult it is for her to connect with the baby in the first year of his life. And then another similar story, Lance Bass of NSYNC, he and his husband, they, they, uh, uh, acquired twins through surrogacy. He also said for the first year of the twins' life, that's a long time, the mm-hmm. twins were almost disinterested in him and his husband. And every time I hear these conversations, it's always from the perspective of how difficult it is for the parent. Right. And I'm over here thinking to myself as a mom, and you're a mom too, how difficult, if you think it's hard for you as right. the parent how difficult do you think it is for this newborn baby that is just being thrust into this strange world and they have nobody that they know and can relate to, to help them navigate the world?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, at them before us, we often explain surrogacy as um, it splices what should be one woman mother into three purchasable and optional women, the genetic Mm -hmm. mother who contributes the egg, the birth mother who gestates and bonds with the baby, and the social mother, the daily female presence in the mm-hmm. child's life every day. So in Chloe Kardashian's situation, right, she was the genetic mother, she's the social mother who raises the child, but she missed out on that critical bonding experience that the birth mother establishes with the child. and. Genetics didn't carry the day there just because the child was genetically related to her. She realized like, hey, that attachment that takes place for nine and a half months, that mattered to me. Now, in Lance Bass's situation, the child lost their genetic mother. They lost their birth mother and they're being starved of a social mother. And in Lance's own testimony, he said, All they wanted was my mother for the first year, whenever my mother would walk in the door, like she was the one that they wanted. That's because, you know, maternal love is not optional in the life of a child. It's actually critical to their development and they crave it. It is what we call mother hunger. When children are denied a relationship with their mother and don't have female love in their life, they'll find a way to meet that need. It just tends to be an unhealthy or unsafe way. Same thing with father hunger. We've got tens of thousands of children created through sperm donors, many of them grow up in intentionally fatherless homes. Those children experience father hunger, and they will find a way to meet that need through whatever kind of male love and attention they can get, of course, often to their detriment. So these three mothers are not optional. Anytime these three women are not found in the same woman, the child will experience loss. And even in the best case scenario, which you could say Chloe Kardashian's situation was the best case scenario. They still have their biological identity because she's genetically related. They still have that maternal love that they're made for because she's in their life. But they lost the only person they knew at the moment they were born. Her child did, because on that day, the surrogate was the mother. The surrogate was the only person the baby knew it was the surrogate's body, voice, milk, smell that that lowered the baby's cortisol rates like it is a losing your mother or even just being separated from your mother for a short period of time, especially in infancy, drastically increases the stress levels of children. And it is only mom's voice and presence that Mm. drops it. So we are really messing with the fundamentals of what it means to be a human child, even in the quote unquote, best case scenario. But in many surrogate situations, the child will lose all three. They'll be, they'll lose their biological mother. They'll lose their birth mother and they'll be starved of a a mother throughout their daily life.
0: Yeah. And I'm curious to, to hear a little bit more about how a child suffers from losing. Let's just say, you know, like you said, best case scenario when they just lose the birth mother, right? I mean, because we're now, people are, you know, they're obsessed with, well, where's the science behind that? Where's the research behind that? Not that we even need science and research to tell us that a child needs his or her birth mother, because that's just one of these common sense things. That's just sort of God-given intuition that we can see the way that nature is and nature reveals itself, the birth mother plays an incredibly important role in in shaping the child's transition from womb to the world. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what are really some of the consequences that children suffer from when they lose the birth mother? I mean, you talked about the elevated levels of cortisol, of course, because we've heard so many stories of... Mothers giving birth in a hospital, and it might be a sort of emergency situation where the child needs to be rushed off to NICU or something. And I've heard so many stories of moms telling the doctor, just let me hold her before you take her away. Please just let me hold her and put her on my chest. And yeah. more times than not, as soon as the baby lays there, her heart rate regulates. She either stops crying or her crying lessens, and she's able to relax because she's with her mommy. She knows her mommy's smell. And this is the kind of physiological, biological, emotional connection that I don't think science will ever be able to fully explain, but talk to us a little bit more about what really happens when you separate that child immediately, not even like a puppy gets eight weeks with its mommy, not even a, a month or two later when you separate the child immediately after birth.
1: Yep. You know, there is a big outcry, on, especially even from the libertarian right. that are like, oh, where's the science? Where's the science? Prove it. Prove it. I'm like, do you understand what you're doing? Mm-hmm. We have never before, as a species, experienced intentionally motherless children. The fact that we don't have robust studies on this tells you that this is really antithetical to what it means to be human. We've got reams of data on father loss for children, reams of data of children and how they fare when they are not united with their father on the moment that they are born. People are like, well, where's the study on mother loss? I'm like, do you understand that our species actually makes it impossible to do this? It is impossible to lose a relationship with your mother after conception, she is required to be in your life for nine and a half months. And then after that, there are biological systems that are in place to bond mother and child together through breastfeeding and through mother's heightened responsiveness to like infant distress and infant cries, which makes her like respond more quickly to the baby. And, um, so here's the, here's the most incredible thing. Um, and this is a huge male female difference when you just want to talk about the importance of that social mother that. Women have a lower tolerance for infant cries. They respond more quickly. And that's very critical to children, especially in the first like six to nine months when, as Erica Komisar says, children don't even have like a, their own central nervous system. It, they cannot regulate their own emotions. They are unable to lower their cortisol level, lower, lower their stress level. Cortisol rises because they are hungry, tired, afraid, wet, scared, whatever it is. And they cannot drop those cortisol levels on their own. The only thing that drops cortisol is, is oxytocin increase. Babies can't release their own oxytocin. It is released through skin-to-skin contact. And women offer more skin-to-skin contact than men simply because of the way our brains are wired. So even in the first couple days of life, the mother is so highly attuned to infant needs. She is going to be constantly... Just like you said in the hospital, but give me the baby, give me the baby, give me the baby, right? Dads are wonderful. And dads provide some very distinct benefits to children that we talk a lot about at them before us. But when you want to talk about attachment and bonding in infancy, men cannot and do not do the same thing. They simply don't. So when you cut off that already developed, highly developed bond, and I would say it's more than a bond. Like a lot of us that have had young children, like they go through this developmental stage where they don't actually know the difference between them and the mother. They believe they are the mother. And when the mother leaves the room, the child freaks out because the baby thinks, where did I go? That's, Mm -hmm. you know, you get that separation anxiety because the child is not yet aware that they are separate people from the mother. I mean, if that's happening when they are four months, six months, eight months, what do you think happens when they are completely physically inseparable from the child for the first nine and a half months? They create something that is like a super bond Like really where they they are so closely knit together with the mother that they are one. And if you think about it, it is the only relationship in our experience where we are connected to a human by a literal cord, a physical cord that has to literally be cut. That is how close the mother-child bond is. Now, we don't have a lot of studies of what happens when you separate a child from their mother the day they're born because historically, babies died. You die when you lose your mother on the day that they are born. Mm. It's only through modern technologies that infants have been able to survive through the NICU or through formula and bottles. Previously, maybe a wet nurse if you were rich enough. But we have not seen uh, mass mother loss and certainly not intentionally. Technology has now allowed us to do this. So the people that say, well, where's the study? Where's the science? The fact that we don't have studies tells you this is antithetical to what it means to be a human child. There have been about four studies that have supposedly studied the impact of surrogacy on children. And just like all the same-sex parenting studies, and just like all of the divorce research in the 70s and 80s, when no-fault divorce was on the rise, miraculously, these studies show the kids love it. There's no problem. There's no difference, right? And that's because all of these studies largely simply survey how the parents think the children are doing versus surveying the actual outcomes of children once they have grown up. But there is a population that gives us some insight into the impact of what mother loss on the day that they are born looks like, and that is adoptees. Mm. So adoptees, many of whom uh, understand this clearly because they also were adopted, especially at birth, experience what they would call a primal wound, right? They have been wound down to the primacy of their emotional development. They were forced to restart, you know, a nine and a half month process in at a time when they could not emotionally regulate, process, articulate the kind of loss that they were experiencing. And so there is an actual book called The Primal Wound that is often referred to as the adoptee's Bible. And it describes this almost universal experience of adoptees, of feeling anxious, dealing with separation, distress, abandonment issues, struggles to trust and attach. Um, And what's very interesting is adoptees are largely raised by adults, adoptive parents, who are more wealthy, more educated, and spend more money and time with them than the mm-hmm. average, even biological parent. And yet, these kids struggle with more externalizing disorders, more challenges in school, because there really seems to be something about interrupting that bond that has lifelong consequences. So, just because we don't yet have the studies, because they would actually be cruel, it would actually be cruel to study this in children. So, we don't st- study maternal separation in human babies. Um, it actually tells you that because we can't conduct these studies of maternal separation, it's probably not something we should be incentivizing technologically.
0: Right. Yeah. And it's, it's even still so disturbing to me that people demand studies, but like, do you really need quote yeah. science to tell you that this doesn't, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't, it, does, it doesn't, it doesn't seem right. It's just something that you can use common sense to kind of observe and see, but you mentioned adoption. And this is one of the first, One of the most common responses I get anytime that I talk about my opposition to surrogacy, there's always some smart aleck in the comment that's like, okay, so you oppose adoption too, right? It's the same thing. So you oppose adoption. I have my own way of explaining the difference between surrogacy and adoption. Um, But I would love to hear you break those two down and explain why surrogacy is not synonymous with adoption.
1: Yep. Uh, We do a lot of commenting and writing about this at Them Before Us, um, because it is such a common objection. Um, And I'm speaking about this uh, as a woman who used to be the assistant director at the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world. And one of the things that I was responsible for was compliance with adoption standards, state, national, and international, because there's a lot of best practice that has been developed in adoption over the last couple of decades. And it is a highly regulated industry because- It is so risky for children to place them with an unrelated adult. And so, and it's risky to take them across international borders. And so there is a lot of frameworks that adoptive parents need to undergo. So the meta answer to that sort of the, the big answer is both of these, both of these pathways to parenthood involve child loss. That is true. And in both of these situations, the child is often raised by an unrelated adult. That is true. That is where the similarities between adoption and surrogacy end. And here's several reasons why. When adoption is properly conducted, according to the safeguards and best practice, the child is the client. The goal at my adoption agency was not to give a baby to every adult that wanted one. Our goal was to find a loving home for every child that needed one. Mm -hmm. So in our framework, the child was the client. We are there to serve them. And that means some adults that want a baby don't get one. In big fertility, whether you're talking about surrogacy or just routine sperm and egg selling and buying, uh, the adult is the client. The goal is to get them a baby no matter what, no matter the cost to the child. So there are two different ways of orienting yourself around this process. Number two, in adoption, the adults do the hard things. So I'm an adoptive parent. I know that a lot of people that are listening to this are, all of you guys went through extensive screening and background checks. You all had references done. You had people visit your home. You had supervision after the child was placed with you. Like it was extensive. And sometimes there were areas where you said, "Mm, we can't approve you right now because you have to have this change to your house, this change to your health. Um, We need We need other references or actually we want, I I know adoptive parents that are like, you need to go to therapy for a while and then come back in a couple of years. Like it's not a given that you're going to get a baby. Adults do hard things in adoption so that children's needs are met, specifically the verification that they are going to be safe and loved once they're placed in the home. In big fertility, the child does hard things for adults. There's no screening. There's no vetting. There's no background checks. If the adult has the money, they get the baby. And what that means is children are very often placed in homes where they could be at risk physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, It is not in the best interest of the child to be placed there. It's simply the adult that's able to cut the largest check that gets the child. Mm. And then another huge distinction between adoption and big fertility is in the adoption world, if money were ever to flow from the adoptive parent to the birth parent, it was no longer adoption. It was child trafficking there are prohibitions against money flowing from the adoptive parents or the intended parents to the genetic family, to the birth mother, to the birth father. That was strictly prohibited because it would categorically fall into the sale of children.
0: I didn't know that. Okay. Wow. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, and all the adoptive parents out there are like, mm-hmm, yes, there's a lot of money that is spent in adoption. None sure. of it goes to the birth mother. It goes to, I mean, when we, when we adopted, we were scrutinized by the state of Washington, by the, at the time, the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, by the Chinese government themselves. Um, we had home studies. We had, we paid for um, the dossier to be compiled. We paid to be scrutinized by the Chinese government. We paid to fly to China to visit our son. We did pay a required donation to the orphanage, um, but none of those costs went to the birth parent right? They all went towards ensuring that we would be a safe placement for the child. So there's money involved in both. Mm-hmm. But big fertility is built on direct payments to genetic parents and birth parents. It is built on paying somebody to sell their egg or their sperm to you, and what you're paying for, you're paying for them to relinquish their parental rights. That's mm-hmm. what you're doing. And mm-hmm. in surrogacy, I'll think a lot of us think, well, this is altruistic, it's a, it's a woman helping her infertile sister. That can happen. But we are pushing commercial surrogacy because there's not enough women who are offering up their wombs for free to meet the demand. So commercial surrogacy is built on direct payments from the intended parents to the birth parents. This is categorically child trafficking.
0: Wow. So it's really it really does come down to, (coughs) excuse me, treating the child as a commodity, as a product.
1: This is right. This is exactly right. In adoption. The child adoption actually supports the rights of children because it recognizes that they are not an item to be cut and pasted into any and every household. But that's exactly what's happens in, not just surrogacy, but all third-party reproduction arrangements with big fertility, whether you're just buying an egg, whether you're just buying sperm, like nobody's scrutinizing these people. Nobody's making sure that they're going to a home that's a safe placement. Nobody's ensuring that they're going to go to their biological parents once everything is done. Like this is simply about the buying and selling and designing and very often discarding or freezing surplus babies. And then sometimes gestating them in an unrelated woman to be handed over to people who very likely might take them across international borders and disappear to never be seen again.
0: And this reminds me so much of your latest for the Federalist. Um, called meet five accused pedophiles who bought kids through surrogacy. And this was just published like probably a week or two ago. And uh, I don't think you mentioned him in this article because you know, there was no charges brought against him, but there's this very famous YouTuber named Shane Dawson. You probably saw that viral story. He and his YouTuber husband, they went through the whole IVF process and they had 12 embryos and they joked online in a video about how each of their babies had a barcode mm-hmm. and it was just this viral thing that went all over the internet they're like ha, "Ha ha we have six boys and six girls and which one should we pick and this one this one has a look at this one's barcode and they're just you know it, laughing at this creation of life that from the very beginning is treated as a commodity and then turns out they had two children via surrogacy so presumably, very likely, the gestational carrier was different than the egg donor. Of course. So there's another woman involved, of course. And so then they have twins and they bring them home. And this guy, Shane Dawson, has a very long history of sexualizing children. I mean, there's stuff on video that's incredibly heinous. He has, I mean, I won't repeat what he said, but he has joked about raping infants Yep. on his radio show this guy is he had to like come out and issue multiple apologies for his for his comments about pedophilia and this is a guy there's no no safeguards in place there's no rules there's nobody checking up on him all you have to do is pay enough money to the clinic to mm-hmm. get your sperm matched with an egg and then pay enough money to a woman to carry your babies and bam you just get to go home with children and That's it reminded right. me a lot of this article that you just wrote for the federalist so Talk about how the fact that there are no there are no safeguards in place. It results in these very predatory people purchasing children and having nobody
1: uh,
0: watch them or supervise them after it's done. Yeah.
1: You know, there are um, children are vulnerable and very vulnerable. They cannot defend themselves. They cannot speak up for themselves. They cannot articulate what's happening to them. And so it is the onus is on a just society to ensure that children are raised by adults that are not going to mistreat them. There's two main mechanisms that we ensure that that is the case. Number one is a biological connection. We spend a lot of time at them before us talking about why biology itself is the best safeguard for child defense. And you look at the, I mean, yes, there's biological parents, but there's very few children who are abused in the home of their married biological mother and father. The vast majority of children who are abused are raised by their biological mother and her cohabiting live-in boyfriend because unrelated adults pose incredible risk to children. The other safeguard that we've put in place is adoption screening. So if a child cannot be raised by both biological parents because... Uh, they cannot or will not do what it takes to protect the child, then we have have derived away our best shot at making sure these children will be protected even if they're not raised by a biological parent or both biological parents. And that is this massive amount of adoption, vetting, and screening. So you can imagine that a child predator who would like to acquire children uh, is going to avoid adoption screening. I mean, a lot of these guys cannot or will not form a relationship with a woman who wants to make children with them because women do tend to screen out undesirable men or dangerous men. And so these men have not created a child or were not able to create a child with an actual woman who is willing to bear their child. And the pathway for adoption is probably going to be closed for them because either they had a criminal record or they had sketchy um, behavior in the past, or if they were to solicit four or five references, a lot of the people would flag them as maybe not necessarily being the right placement for a child. And so surrogacy actually serves as, if you've got the money, a a pretty viable path to have children placed in your home with full parental authority. And then for the sake of um, wanting to exploit and abuse them. So we don't have, big fertility does not have any requirements for like tracking these children. We don't know how many children are created through surrogacy. We don't know how many donor-conceived children there are. We don't really have a good idea on how many IVF cycles and how many children are born through those IVF cycles um, a year because anytime big fertility is um, required or anytime legislation is passed to say, tell us what's happening to these children, they reject it. So they don't even want to report what is going on. So, so totally we don't necessarily completely unregulated. There's a few places, a few states, a few countries that are starting to say, okay, if you're going to do sperm or egg donation, at least the child needs to have access to their biological information by the time they're 18. I mean, that's what we're talking about. There's a few proposals that say, well, maybe we should have some kinds of minimal screening, but a lot of those haven't, don't make it to the light of day. Like we in in Washington state they passed a commercial surrogacy bill here in 2018 and the I mean it was a freight train we couldn't stop it but we said at least subject these unrelated adults to background checks. At least make sure that they're not using mentally impaired surrogates to create children. I mean at least make sure they don't have a criminal background and all of the amendments were rejected. So there this industry is hyper resistant to any kind of regulation because it would implement, it would you know undermine their bottom line. And this is in essence this is a money this is a cash cow for the medical world. It's all elective and if you want it you can buy it. So yes, we already have demonstrated cases of predators who have acquired children for the sole purpose of exploitation through surrogacy. And we go through five of those cases um, in the article talking about, you know, men that subjected their children to pedophile rings, started abusing them within days of their birth, um, created child pornography using their surrogate-born children, or maybe ones that did not necessarily abuse their child. But a couple of years after they procured their children, you know, years worth of child pornography was found on their computer or their phone. So Obviously, if you want to abuse children, if you can't find a woman to make those children with you, you're if you don't think that you're going to be able to pass an adoption screening and you've got, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in your bank account, you can have a child placed with you through surrogacy.
0: Oh, my gosh, that makes me makes me very sick to my stomach to even hear that. But I think it's really important for people to understand the reality of the industry, because uh, unfortunately, what what a lot of people respond with because i think it's people's sort of knee-jerk reaction to think of the compassionate side they're like oh so you think that infertile women should not have children but like you said those are those are very few cases of like a sister helping carrying the child for her you know for her sister because she's infertile like those are th- those are the that's the minority right mm-hmm. of these cases of surrogacy well we don't know
1: Because nobody's keeping track. We don't know. But I will say that, you know, altruistic surrogacy was legal in New York state for decades, Um, but they passed a commercial surrogacy bill because one of the sponsors said "There, there wasn't any woman in New York willing to do it for free. And I had to go to California because that's the only place that I could pay a woman to do this. So commercial surrogacy is a thing. Because it is hard to find an altruistic surrogate, somebody that will give nine and a half months of their life to what is always a categorically high risk pregnancy to bond with a baby that they will be required to give away.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's another piece, too, is that a lot of women don't realize that there are a lot of risks of, of putting essentially a foreign egg and sperm, a foreign embryo into your body, foreign DNA. I don't, we don't know what the rates are of miscarriage or anything like that, because again, it's not regulated. So we don't know what the statistics are, but just again, common sense. I'm sure a lot of times, because I know, I know some people in the conservative political movement who have tried surrogacy in the past and they ended up with a couple of miscarriages Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not necessarily public knowledge, but I know, I know of these stories. Yeah. And it's, it's almost kind of to be expected because our bodies, are designed to protect ourselves yeah. so you have this foreign dna that's being just injected into your body and it is a high risk not only for the mother but obviously for this child and our culture has been so desensitized to the word embryo we just think oh embryo whatever it doesn't look like a baby so it's not a baby it doesn't seem like a baby it doesn't cry like a baby so what's the point but that's a human life that's just as valuable as yours or mine and you're doing this huge risk to place this embryo in a foreign chamber, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's where we become so desensitized to it. And one thing that I actually wanted to ask you as well, because we mentioned it before we started recording, was there's well, an let me, argument. Let me talk yeah, about sure.
1: the, the health risk to women because. Yeah, sure. sure. Surrogacy has largely been banned across the world and much of Europe based on the what I would call the feminist argument, right? The argument that this is a method of exploitation of economically vulnerable women, which is almost always the case, right? You don't really see a lot of celebrities offering to be surrogates for their housekeeper, but you see quite a bit of the reverse, right? So this is very much a situation of the rich buy and the poor sell. Yeah. Um, in terms of research on the impact of Surrogate Health, the Center for Bioethics and Culture has done some distinct research on this and looked at higher rates of um, miscarriages, underweight, preterm labor and delivery. And so it's interesting because you're exactly right for a variety of different reasons, whether it's just like the ART involved, right, the fact that this is not a naturally occurring pregnancy, it could be the that jo- the massive amounts of hormones that women need to inject into their bodies to make it a hospitable place or a pseudo hospitable place for the child. It could be the genetic dissimilarity that you mentioned, right? That the body realizes this is not a genetically related entity that's in me, um, but it is categorically and always high risk. Like if, if you are carrying a surrogate baby, the nurses, the doctors are all going to say, oh, this is a high risk pregnancy. And so then you look at people like Paris Hilton, Who say, well, I was just so afraid to give birth. I just have this fear of giving birth. Well, if she had carried her own child, um, she and the baby would have statistically been much safer. But instead she outsourced that risk to another woman who statistically has higher rates of pregnancy failure, her own maternal health costs and higher risk to the baby. So this, you know, this article, this, this idea that this is, not uh, a big deal, that it's neutral for women. Um, There are risks. Now, what are the risks? How much do we know? (laughs) We're not sure because we don't, unlike organ donation, where we track the people that are involved in these medical processes, like we said, there's no regulation of the fertility industry, so we cannot gather data on Mm. it at all.
0: And they use that against us and they say, oh, well, there's no data, no science to back you up. And then that's used, that's weaponized against us. That's right. Yeah. And so we were talking a little bit more about the idea that surrogacy also commodifies women. And this Mm -hmm. is also an argument that's popping up a lot more now. I always find it very odd when I see like uh, organizations online, they're like, we're feminists and we're against surrogacy. And I'm like, okay, that's odd. But they Mm -hmm. claim that surrogacy is a commodification of women. And I want to hear your perspective because you have a few things to say about that.
1: Um, Yeah. So when you look at the numbers, It's true. 25% of the global surrogacy industry right now is headquartered in Ukraine. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Why? Because they have low regulation and they have women that are desperate. Their husbands are on the front line. Their husbands have been killed. They are trying to support their three children at home already. Um, And so this is a place where you, you can just watch big fertility and they are always in search of places that have high numbers of women that are economically vulnerable. And we've saw that, you know, throughout the last 10 years, like for example, India opened their doors wide to big fertility and they ended up setting up like factories of women. Julia Bindle did some incredible research on this. She's a feminist. Um, And I mean, literally it was just like, I mean, you could look through catalogs of women's naked bodies, but from the neck down. Right. Don't look at their face. They're not a real person. just kind of like 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 a slave auction, just kind of grab the breast, feel it around. Oh, yeah, this is good stock. This is what we need. And these women would be separated from their families. Um, it was just it was not about them at all. Oftentimes they were cheated out of the money that they were promised. Um, and it was very it was only a couple of years that India realized, wait a second, this is like using women and trafficking children and they shut it down and then the same thing happened in cambodia and then the same thing happened in thailand and then the same thing happened in nepal right big fertility goes into these countries where women need money they exploit them they create custom ordered children you know one research paper says it's a situation of brown bodies giving birth to white babies because it's almost always wealthy white westerners who come over and rent the services of a nigerian woman and then fly their baby home so that there are economic realities that skew this towards female exploitation is absolutely true. However, I don't think that that's a strong argument, because whenever I am campaigning, when my organization is testifying against bills that would normalize and expand the reach of big fertility, you they always the other side always brings in the happy. Intended mother, right? The woman who got the child through surrogacy with the baby on her hip. And she's so delighted. Usually she's the genetic mother. And then they bring in the happy surrogate, the woman who says, I loved this. This was empowering. And now we're best friends. You know, sometimes they'll bring in a gay couple who will say, Well, this was the only path that I had for equality. Um, But we paid, you know, we knew our egg donor. She was my husband's sister. And so the child's going to be connected with their biological aunt you know their biological mother who's going to live as their aunt and our surrogate is our good friend and nobody was exploited and all of the women in the situation were perfectly happy and so that's true there's a lot of situations where the genetic mother is very happy to have earned eight thousand dollars for the sale of her egg where the surrogate did it for free or did it for forty thousand dollars and is good friends with the intended parents and the intended mother who said this was the only way that i could have children. and so to me that female exploitation argument falls apart when you when the rubber meets the road because all three of those mothers consent and love it. the problem is children don't consent. no child would consent to being commercially separated from their genetic mother from intentionally inflicting that primal wound when they are on the day that they are born and losing the only person they know. No child would consent to being starved of maternal love every day of their life. Children do not consent. This is fundamentally not about women. This is about children. This is a matter of human rights when it comes to the child.
0: Mm. I think that's a very powerful way to frame it because there is always a sort of backdoor argument that you can use whenever you're talking about the commodification of women. I always hear the consent argument. Well, this woman consented and it was fine. My response is usually, well, I don't believe in a consent-based morality. I don't sure, believe that just because right. someone consents to it means it's right. But an even more powerful way to approach it is that this is about children. And I think that also takes away from, it It allows us to not engage with the kind of arguments like well you just don't want women to have you don't want infertile women to have children do you well it's not at all about who deserves to have children and who doesn't this is about protecting children
1: mm-hmm.
0: and well, children go ahead
1: well that's exactly right and that's what I that's what I meant when i said adults are going to do hard things or children are going to do hard things suffering with infertility that is a massive heartache, a massive heartache. And you can deal with that heartache by purchasing an egg, renting a womb, and then having a child lose their genetic identity and the attachment of their birth mother so that you can be the social mother of the child. But let's just be clear, you're forcing the child to do hard things so you don't have to. Right. And honestly, it's the same thing with somebody who is gay or experiences same-sex attraction. You can procure genetic materials to separate the child from one or both of their biological parents. Maybe gestate the child yourself, maybe rent it out, you know, to somebody else. But let's be clear. You're forcing the child to deal with identity issues and abandonment issues so that you can live as you please. The child's doing hard things so you don't have to. And we take that into all the other areas of our work. When you're in a struggling marriage and you're thinking, I got to get out of this. Like, I need somebody that really understands me and gets me. Well, Either you do the hard thing of working through your marital challenges, your communication issues, you know, your childhood baggage, getting the counseling that you need, or your children will do the hard thing by living split homes and split Mm -hmm. lives. In every marriage and family situation, adults are facing very real challenges, but someone is going to do the hard thing. It is either going to be the adult who Mm -hmm. actually has the brain capacity, the experience, the support to achieve that, or you're going to shoulder, you're going to force children to shoulder the load and do hard things on your behalf. So Mm -hmm. in our, in our world, in the children's rights world, we say, I'm sorry. No, I don't care. It's not, it's not that I don't care. I'll empathize with you, but your longing, suffering, desire, identity does not trump a child's fundamental rights. And you need to bend to them instead of forcing them to bend to you.
0: I think that's great. And I think it's perfectly reflective of how our culture generally approaches marriage and parenthood and family the wrong way. I think that our modern Western culture has taught the younger generation, I mean, you know, even older generations too, to approach marriage and motherhood and family as a selfish endeavor, as some sort of like self-growth exercise. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to get married and have kids because it's going to make me happier. I'm going to get married because it's going to make my life easier. That's not, I don't believe that's how we should be approaching marriage and family at all. That's not to say that, of course, you're going to enjoy family. Of course, you're going to enjoy marriage, but it's not about your immediate happiness. It's not about your self-growth and it's not about how you feel making life easier for you. I think that we need to acknowledge that marriage and motherhood and parenthood family, it's hard. It's very difficult and it's worth it because the most rewarding things in life are difficult and they take a lot of sacrifice but we flipped everything on its head. And we're now teaching people that your marriage and your family should make you feel happy. should make you feel like things are easier for you. And I think that results yeah. in a lot of dangerous decisions. One of many of which is something like the commodification of children and surrogacy. You know, as long as the adults are happy, as long as you and your husband are getting the baby that you feel like you deserve. And um, it's, it's such a disappointing way to just approach family in general.
1: Yeah. And We talk a lot at them before us um, about how adults need to do hard things um, and that children have rights and you need to conform to their rights rather than making them conform to you. Um, But really what we're fighting against is this mindset that children exist for us. Mm. And that goes back a lot farther than surrogacy. I mean, honestly, you know, I'm, I'm an evangelical, so I don't have any like um, church teaching around birth control, but It did begin with birth control in terms of, hey, I decide when kids are welcome. I decide whether or not we're going to, they exist for me. And if I want them, then I can have them. And then that moved into like IVF, right? Well, I'm not able to have kids or, you know, I've decided that I want them even though I'm past childbearing age or I don't have a partner or whatever it is, right? They exist for me. So then it moved into abortion right? And now if I do conceive and I have a child, but it's inconvenient or I don't want them, or they have a disability, right? All of this tells me that like kids exist for me. If I want them, they're welcome. In fact, if I want them, I can force them into existence, even if it violates their rights, their right to life, their right to their mother and father. Um, I can force them out of existence if they're inconvenient or unwanted or disabled or defective through abortion. And so now like this choice to live a, purposefully child-free life, even if you have a husband, it's still that same mentality. They exist for me. If it advances my happiness, my desire, my fulfillment, my goals, then maybe one or two. Mm. And we have to completely reconfigure how we think about everything. Children Mm -hmm. don't exist for us. They are not accessories. They are not items of validation. We exist for them. Adults exist for children. And we have to get this right because if we don't, It is a mentality of injustice. It will always force children to, it will always force the weakest in society to sacrifice for the strong. And that is always a system of injustice.
0: Mm. So what do we do moving forward? I mean, as people who kind of watch along in horror and see all of this happening around us and we don't see any regulation and it can be quite discouraging, especially for mothers, what can we do?
1: The number one thing is you have to become an expert. You need to know more about this than everyone else. You need to be know how to respond to the, well, there's no research and, well, it doesn't matter or mothers are optional or kids just need love and safety. It doesn't, they don't need a mom and dad or biology is irrelevant or, um, you know, this is really just a way to give infertile couples the children that they want. You actually need to know how to respond to all of those things. And And I'll tell you why, because the stakes are high. The stakes are very high right now. There's not a lot of people using surrogates because it's still fairly cost prohibitive. I mean, it's more and more. It's being pushed. It's being promoted. We have entire organizations that are going around the globe, putting on conferences specifically for gay men. It's called men having babies. And the whole purpose is to make motherless children for single, double, triple groups of men. I mean, but we still don't have we don't know the exact numbers but it's probably in the several thousands per year right now. That is is going to drastically increase just through more permissive surrogacy regulations. Um, But also we've got things like artificial wombs on the horizon, which is going to truly create factory floors of custom ordered children for anyone and everyone. We are about to see the unfolding of, we are seeing now, but we are going to see on a grander, larger scale, the unfolding of massive human rights abuses. So if we cannot get things right now, if we cannot fight against this now, it does not get better. It It only gets more dystopic. So we've written a lot about this at Them Before Us. We have an entire chapter in our first book, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement on Surrogacy. We go in depth into the distinctions between adoption and surrogacy, which you need to be able to respond to. But this is a categorical no. There is no situation. There is no surrogate arrangement that is neutral for children. It will always harm them. And so we have to reorient our mindset away from, oh, but I have so much empathy for my gay brother who would be an amazing dad because he probably would and reorient our mind around, no, children are not items to be bought, sold, designed and discarded and delivered to anybody who wants them. We have to begin with a posture of child defense and we need to get very, very serious about it because I will tell you what, nobody, not big fertility, very few politicians, very few media influencers. Nobody is going to advocate on behalf of the child. That is your job. That is my job, and the stakes are very high.
0: Hmm. Well, I love what you do, Katie. I'm I'm so I'm so grateful for everything you do because I think right now you're one of the strongest voices we have. To to understand surrogacy better and uh, and I think that more people should know who you are and support them before us. So where can people find you um, and what are the best ways to support them before us?
1: Go to thembefore us.com, scroll down, subscribe. We are. We're taking over the world. I mean that's it. like I intend this I intend this to be a global takeover that every country and every conversation about marriage and family would begin with, hey, what about the child? And then we would insist that the personal and the political bend to the rights of children. So come, join us, be a part of this. Like the world needs an army of child defenders. Um, Mm -hmm. We have a podcast. You can look for the Them Before Us podcast. We will bring you up to speed in terms of audio. Our first book, Them Before Us, is, um, oh my gosh, you know, we got a couple hundred footnotes in some of the chapters because it is research heavy, but also you will read dozens and dozens of stories who were raised in these children raised in these modern families. So you can look them in the face yourself and say, the way that we are designing and arranging families these days that always require a child to lose their mother or father, you'll you'll be able to hear their stories for yourself. And that lights a fire in me when you actually see the real children who are harmed by it. So come to them before us get on board. Let me equip you. Um, Stay in touch with us. Um, We will make you fierce warriors on behalf of children and nobody will be able to stand against you.
0: I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time, Katie. This is fantastic. I would love to do this again, because I mean, I know that there's so much more in this topic that we can uncover and we can unpack together. Um, So thank you so much for your time. Everybody, please go follow Katie and them before us. And thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll see you next time.